Good morning. The spiritual feast of fasting is what we're going to talk about today, right? The idea that you can have a, a fast and it's actually a spiritual feast for us. Years ago, as uh, we would go to school, it was the habit of my mother to have us listen to the news in the morning. And there was this one time this, this thing resonated in my mind. It, it, it grabbed a hold of me. And it was a story about this young man. This was back when Ireland was still having its troubles with England. And this young man had been put in prison. And I remember this, this story because the news was following it. And this young man had gone 50 days, maybe 60 days, without eating. And, of course, now they were very concerned because he was on the, on the brink of death. Right? And later on that week, he did die. And I remember thinking as a young man, that struck me. It's like, why would somebody do that? Right? There are certain things in life you need. Right? You need food. You have to eat. You have to keep moving. You need to breathe. Right? You can hold your breath for a while, but you either pass out right, and start breathing again, or you just give up and start breathing. And drinking, you have to drink. You can only go so many days. So there's, there are certain fundamental things that we need. And it struck me that this guy had done something very fanatical. Right? And as young men who aren't necessarily thinking about all the implications, I kind of let that form a theology for me. Because I thought, wow, anybody that does something like that, anybody that resists eating, there's something really weird about them. Right? And for a while that formed my theology because I put that off and I said, you know what, when I look at who does it in Scripture too, they're kind of the same, right? They're guys that run around and they wear rough clothes, they eat locusts and honey out in the desert, right? Or they're Jesus. I certainly don't match up to him. You know, he goes for you. Moses up on the hill. So I had this ability, and I think we all tend to do that, right? We tend to look and we say, how can I, how can I set this aside? It's not being me. It's very extraordinary. It's something that extraordinary people do. And I held on to that for a while, and then later I ran into a guy at school, and he gave me a book, and the book was on fasting, and I remember thinking, well, this guy's you know, he's in class with me. He's not a fanatic, right? He's just like me. And so I started glancing through the book, and I started thinking about what, is, you know, what does this have to say to me about fasting? And the thing that struck me was, as I started reading, you couldn't really find a lot, right? It was, it, when you look at the Old Testament, there's only one time it's ever commanded, right? The Day of Atonement. It's a command. You will afflict yourself, humble yourself on that day. And then you start looking through, and it's, a lot of times it's about sorrow and about pain. So David, right, when his illegitimate child's dying, Bathsheba and his child, what does he do? He fasts. And why does he fast? He wants God to intervene. And so you look at it, and a lot of times it's about sorrow. But again, you start to, it started to change my mind. It wasn't so much about fanatics. There was a part going on there. But then I looked at the New Testament, because... That's where I live. I'm a member of the New Covenant, right? We've progressed. There's a progression that's going on. And it's never commanded. So then I had another struggle. What do I do with that? Right? And I started, I started thinking it through. And, and it's interesting because when you think about Jesus, Jesus implies that his followers are going to do this. So when, the, uh, when John the Baptist's guys come up, they say, Hey, the Pharisees fast. We fast. Your disciples aren't fasting. And he says, well, yeah, the bridegroom's here. I mean, now's not the time for fasting. Right? He says, but when I leave, they will. And so that put another little chink in my argument about, about who fasts, what kind of people fast. And Jesus said, my followers will fast when I'm gone. And then you get to Paul, and you start looking through his writings, and the same thing's kind of true. He, he implies that, that there's participation going on, whether it's in uh, 
1 Corinthians where he's talking about husbands and wives. There are times where you set things aside. And he says one of those times you can do that is for prayer and fasting. So there's, there's an implication, hey, it happens. It goes on. Again, it's part of the rhythm of life of a believer, of someone who's participating. And he also talks about it in relation to himself. Right? He says, you know, I, I went through prayers and fasting. So he gives a whole litany of things that he's, that he's gone through in his life as part of his discipline. And so there is this kind of a implied part going on. And then you look at how they made decisions, and there are a couple of times where we see in Acts when Paul and Barnabas are being set out, it says that they, that they prayed and fasted before they sent them out. Right? And then also there's the, the, the part where uh, they're thinking about the elders and who to put in charge, and they pray and fast. So there's, there's this implication that, hey, it goes on, and it's not about fanatics. But the thing that drove me nuts was... They just assume we know how to do it, right? There's just this assumption. Everyone always just says, when you fast, it'll happen. And so then you struggle with, well, God doesn't usually ask us to do something without taking his time to lovingly walk us through it. And what you find is you find yourself coming to the passage we're going to look at today, which is Isaiah 58. And you find that there's this really rich, loving manual that he gave us. And so you have this rich text, the only text really this rich on fasting in the Bible, and it's a beautiful one. We're going to walk through it today. The other thing that strikes me about Isaiah in general, the prophets in general, but specifically Isaiah 58, is it's almost like you've dropped a pebble into a pond and you know how the ripples go out. Or if you want, you can use the echo. It's the one I, I put in the outline, but the echo idea. You will hear in what we read today and what we go through today, you will hear echoes in the Sermon on the Mount, right, and in James, you'll hear it other places also, but you particularly hear it there. The reason that's intriguing, and why I want you to kind of put that in the back of your brain and hang on to it for a little bit, is that so much of how we are to be as believers, our ethics, if you will, are found in those two passages. And so there's, there's something important going on here where you see that the themes of Isaiah 58 about fasting and what it means and what we're doing, they get echoed in these two, two the book and a passage that are so important to us about our spiritual state, our heart and what our heart's like. So you're ultimately left with the question, why fast? Why fast? And I think you can find the answer, at least for me, I found the answer in Jeremiah. When you think about Jeremiah 17.9, he talks about the heart, right? In Jeremiah 17.9, he says, the heart is a deceitful thing. It's deceitful and wicked above all things. And when you think about our heart, being kind of our worst enemy sometimes, it makes you think, well, what do I do to guard against that? Right? And so what we're going to see today as we go through Isaiah 58, you're going to see the answer to that question is, part of it is the discipline of fasting attached with prayer. I'm not going to discount prayer, but fasting, because our heart is deceitful. Right? It is wicked, and it lies to us. Matthew Henry uh, summed it up best for me when I was reading through some of his work. He said, you know, the reason you fast is because... It reforms our lives, and it undo, or we undo what is amiss. Right, what a beautiful thing that God gave us a passage that walks us through how we undo what's amiss. Right? So let's take a look. There are 14 verses in this uh, particular uh, chapter, and they, they, pack, they pack a wallop. Right? They, they are really, really fun to go through. And just to give you an idea where we're going to go, there, the, the book of Isaiah covers a lot of themes that get covered in Isaiah 58, but when you look at uh, chapter uh, 58, you see that there's a preamble, 
there's this idea where the people have a point of view and then God responds to their point of view. Then God kind of explains what he expects. How does this work and what the blessings are? And then there's this last part that gets tagged on about the Sabbath. I decided that 13 or 14 on the Sabbath was a bridge too far, and so it needs to be covered at another time. But this gives you an idea where we're going to run. All right? So let's go to the, uh, let's go to the text. The first thing you have to understand about uh, the first five verses is that they're the key. If you don't get your head around the first five verses, you're going to misunderstand a lot of what comes after this. And it's interesting, if you break it down into how, many, how much is there, you see that almost half of the book he's going to cover in this first five verses, first six verses. So we're going to focus there for a little while because it sets up what fasting is really about and why it's important for us and how we do it and how, how we should function in it. First five. I'm going to go for the first verse. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sin. Cry out. I mean, that should grab your attention right away. It's almost like going to a movie and seeing, you know, you hear the music coming on and, it's a, and you know something important is going to happen. When you see God say, cry out, he's telling a prophet, cry out to the people, sit up in your chair, scoot a little forward, and get ready to hear something, because something's coming, right? I said, something serious is coming this way. And then God says, lift up your voice like a trumpet. You get the point, right? He's saying, don't do this real quietly. Don't just say, okay, guys, you know, you kind of got this going. He says, no, call them out. Call them out. These are my people, and I want you to call them out, because what's about to happen, what I'm about to lay out to you, is that important, right? And this particular trumpet's the shofar, which is an important instrument in the, in the uh, Israelite culture. It's the horn they used on the Day of Atonement. It's the horn they used on New Year's Day. It was a ram's horn, very shrill. It's, it's, it has a real unique sound. And he says, cry out and tell my people their transgressions in the house of Jacob their sins. Then we hit verse 2. It says, yet they seek me daily. Delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. I'm going to stop there for a second because the the people ask a couple of questions. You read that list, and at face value, is there anything there you wouldn't want to be labeled for you? Look at this. At the beginning, yet they seek me daily. The ESV says day by day. In our vernacular, we would say they have their daily Bible study. Would we not? So that what's going on here? They seek him day by day. They delight to know my ways. Is there any of us that don't want to say, hey, I delight to know God's ways? This is something I consider precious. As a nation that did righteousness, did not forsake the ordinance of God, their God, right? They ask me for ordinances of justice. Here's the people that are appealing to God and saying, we want justice. I mean, is there any of us sitting here today that don't want God's justice in our world? And then the, then the interesting thing happens because the, the people then say, hey, we're doing all this stuff, and they say, why have we fasted? There's a, they're perplexed. It's not working. They say, why have we fasted, right? And you haven't seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? The key is back a couple little verses before that, right, where you say, and it... And it says, as a nation that did righteousness. The key there is that they weren't a nation doing righteousness. They were doing this as a nation who was doing righteousness. So they have all the right forms, right? They're doing the things day by day. They're looking to God. They want to be close to God. 
They want to see him do justice. They want to see his ordinances. And God says, cry out to them aloud, because they're acting as a nation that did righteousness. And so then the people go, wow, it's not working. We're fasting, right? We're afflicting ourselves, verse 3. Why have we afflicted our souls? And you don't take notice. And God says, let me show you what's really going on. So he says, verse 3, In fact, in the day of you fast and find pleasure, and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate, and to strike with a fist of wickedness. And you will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush, and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? So the people are saying, hey, we're doing all this stuff right, right? And God says, well, you're doing it as if you were a nation who really is trying to do it the right way. The people then say, it isn't working. And God says, you're right, and here's why it's not working. Let me walk you through why this is not a functioning system for you. And he starts out by saying, in fact, of the day you fast you find your own pleasure. There's something really wrong going on here. So they're fasting, they're restraining themselves some way, but in the, they're turning around and they're finding a way to enjoy themselves at the same time, right? They're saying, huh, God says, well, that's not what I'm asking of you. I'm not asking for you to do the right form and still find a way to have pleasure on the side. That's not what this is about. And then he says, and while you're at it, you exploit your workers, right? You're working them hard, and you strike with a wicked fist. You can see this. If you don't eat, right, if you, if you go a few days without eating, the tendency, I think, of most people is to get kind of grumbly. Right? You, get kind of, you get kind of upset and you're hard to live with. And what does he say here? He says, indeed, right, you strife and have debate. You, indeed, you fast for strife and debate, and you strike with the fist of wickedness. Things are going wrong. Again, the outward appearance looks so great, but God's saying, wait a minute. Look what's really going on behind the scenes. I'm really happy that you guys think you have the right form, but look what's going on behind the scenes. You're actually fighting and struggling and strifing. You're enjoying yourselves. And then it's, it's, it reminds me of a parent in some ways. You know, when there are times where you look at your child, and there are times my parents looked at me and said, Did I really? Is, is that really what I asked of you? There's this kind of almost sarcastic part, but there's this, there's this training tool of, Is this really what's going on? And that's what he says right now. He says, in verse 4, right? You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. What was their complaint up in verse 3? They say, you don't take any notice of us. And he says, you're right. You're not going to fast this way and have me take notice of you. You're not going to fast this way and have me here. You're absolutely right. Your complaint's valid. I'm not listening. And he says, and is this the day I called you for? A day to aff- Is this the day I've chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? And this is where, he gets, this is where you can see Isaiah, the Holy Spirit through Isaiah, almost getting sarcastic with us. Is it for you to bow down like a bulrush, right? Is, it really, is that really what I'm looking for, for you to bow down, to put out your sackcloth and ashes? I mean, is this what I'm asking for? Is it, are you going to call this a fast, a day that's acceptable, acceptable to me? This resonates when you think about Jesus talking about the Pharisees, right, in Matthew uh, 6, 6.16. He says, you know, what do they do? They're walking around, and what do their faces look like? they got grumbly faces on. They look sad. You can tell they're fasting. And Jesus says, you know what? The only reward they're going to get is the fact that you noticed 
that their face looked downcast. And he says, don't do that. If you're going to fast, what do I tell you to do? Get up, shower, fix your hair, put on your best clothes, walk around with a smile on your face. And you know what? God will reward you. God will reward you for that. And God's calling us. It's the same sin going on here. He said, this is not what I'm asking for. I'm not asking for you to bow your head. And all that. I'm asking for you to have the right heart. So you laid out to me all the right things, and I'm telling you, not so much. Not so much. It's interesting because a couple of the commentators talk about that, and I think the quandary we have is, are they, are they hypocrites? Were they hypocrites because they purposely were, or is it just by accident? And I think the conclusion I came to is it doesn't really matter, right? It's a sin of commission or a sin of omission. Either way, they've got it wrong. And I think that's where we have to take, take a stop back and say, okay, wait a minute, same things can happen to me, especially when I think about fasting and what I'm doing. Which then made me ask a question. I think there's a tendency for us to look at Israel and we say, silly Israel, you know, what a bunch of maroons. You know, these guys couldn't get it right. They, they had all this information and they couldn't quite figure out how to, to get their act together. And you think about earlier, Isaiah talks about in 20, verse 29, he talks about, um, they draw near to me with their, with their mouths and they honor me with their lips. Again, it's the same kind of sin. We say the right things. Our lips are saying the right things. We have all the right things going on. But he says, their hearts were removed from me. Again, I go back to Jeremiah. What about the heart? The heart's deceitful. And so he says, when you fast, realize you're going to have a tendency to deceive yourself. They're going to look for the wrong things. It made me think, because then I was thinking, well, that's great. That's Israel. And it made me think about, what, where do I see something like this going on? And you see it in Revelation. And I think just so we don't have this tendency to say this doesn't apply to us. We don't have this problem necessarily happening. When you go to Revelation, there's a church called uh, of Ephesus, right? And he get called by, by uh, God for certain things, for Christ. And he says, what, what do I know about you? In verse 2 of uh, chapter 2 of Revelation, he says, I know your works, your labor, and your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil and that you've tested those who say that they're apostles and are not, and you've found them liars, and you've persevered, have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Okay, not a thing there we would complain either, right? I think everyone, including me, inside of CBC, there's not a thing on that list that we wouldn't say we do, right? Do we not find ourselves not bearing those who are evil? We resist evil. That's one of the things we've been called to do. Do we not test what's being said to say, is this truthful? Does this match up against the Scriptures? Right? Have we not persevered? Are we not patient? Have we not labored? And, but then God says, the same thing kind of happens here in, in Revelation, right? He says, but you've lost your first love. There's still something wrong. There's a, there's a hiccup happening in the way you are applying what's going on in your life. And it's the same thing we see back in Isaiah, is it not? So the point being, we haven't changed that much over the millennia. As humans, we still have the same tendencies to falter. Right? So when you think about what we're looking at right now, there may be a tendency to say, well, that's Israel, and they were pretty silly. Don't do that, because it's silly Israel. It's silly us. Right? I find their mistakes in my life every single day. Right? So the cool thing about the sovereign Lord we serve is... We don't find him just saying, by the way, here's how everything's wrong in your life. He's gracious and tender to us. And the beautiful thing about this passage, he gets down, done in verse 5 basically saying, 
This is how everything's wrong. This is where everything's broken apart. And then he goes into a whole litany for us, a litany of things where he says, here is the fast I really want for you. So you guys are trying and you're missing the mark. Now let me tell you how you can fast. Let me tell you how it's done correctly. Let me tell you what the blessings are that will come from that. Now, there's about 13 quids, if you will, and about 14 quos, right? So, but I think the problem we have to be careful about, and let's guard against this, is God is sovereign, and that's the key to understanding this. He will bless who he will bless, right? And he'll curse who he curses. There's a real comfort for us. There's a joy in us as believers knowing that God is sovereign and is in charge. But the tendency is when we see a list like this to make it a checkbox. Well, check, 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 check. And what happens is we feel like we can get God in a corner. Well, I did. Check, 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 check. And now all these things should flow out. And God says, don't do that. I just got done telling you that's the wrong way to approach this. He says, look, I'm going to tell you how to do it. And then I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And you'll have a joyful experience. You'll feast on these things that happen. Right? So we look at it and we say, all right. Let's look at the first part. Now, what I did is, there, because there's so many, there's 13 of them, it's hard to always put those, it's hard to keep track of them. So I've grouped them together just to help me, and hopefully it'll help you also. And the first one I grouped them into was this idea that when you, a real fast will cause you to lift burdens. Lift burdens. Where do I see that? Where do I see that? Well, verse 6, let's start there. Is this not the fast that I've chosen? Number one, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens... That actually can be to, to break the bonds of the yoke, right? But heavy burdens is the one I have here. To let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. And if you hop down to the middle of verse 9, and he says, if you take away the yoke from your midst. The idea of freeing, the yokes going away. So we think about the yokes being a burden, right? You think about the, the ox that had to carry it, and there was something that sat on their shoulders. The first one that God lays out for us here is this idea that, that we're to lift burdens. And I contrast this with Jeremiah again. If you want to understand the mindset of the people that he's talking to, right? in Jeremiah there's this interesting little passage where every seven years the Israelites were to free everybody who was an Israelite who was in debt. Right? That was your duty, to free them, to release their debt. And there, there's a warning in the law that, which also says, hey, and by the way, when you're, when you're taking care of a poor person and giving them a loan in the last year of that, of that one, don't use that as an excuse that they're going to get out of it within a year. Right? But the interesting thing in Jeremiah is they get called on it by the, the powers that be, and they say, you're right. You know what? We haven't freed the people that we need to be freeing. It is a burden on them to be enslaved to us as debtors. And so they free them. And in the very next verse, you know what they do? It's like they have an aha moment. I just let my entire workforce go, and they put them all back into bondage. And God calls them on it and says, that is wrong. And it's the same kind of concept going on here. We're called to lift those kind of burdens, just like they were supposed to lift the burdens of their brothers, and they didn't. They actually put the burden back on. We've been called to lift those burdens and take them off. It reminds me of Jesus, right? In Matthew, what does he talk about? My burden is easy, right? And my yoke is is light. As believers, when we fast, one of the things you should be driven to is the idea that you are lifting the burdens of the people around you. The Pharisees are a prime example of a group that didn't do this. And what does Jesus say about them? What does he say about them? He says, they not only follow the law, they've put a whole load on top of that that they can't even obey themselves. They can't obey it. They've made a burden too heavy for anybody. 
And the same is true here. God's saying, if you fast, and when you fast correctly, you know what will happen to your heart? Your heart will change, and you will lift the burdens of the people around you. It's the gospel, isn't it? It's the good news. That's our job. You and I as believers, what are we to do? We're to lift the burden of the world around us, and there's nothing more important in lifting that burden than the gospel. Sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel, saying, here is the truth about how your burden gets lifted. The other interesting part about the the burden lifting, if you go back to verse 3, one of the things he says is we, you drive your workers hard, right? And, and this is a contrast going on here. He's saying lift burdens, yet one of the things you're doing when you say you're fasting that you're not is you're actually putting a burden on. You're driving your workers hard. You're making them work extra hard. That's not lifting a burden. So again, there's this contrast going on that you're saying one thing, doing another, and here's the right way to do it, right? Do this, don't do that. The second one that I kind of grabbed on, so if the first one is lifting the burdens, the second one that kind of struck out to me starts in verse 7, and it's this idea of a true fast, if we do it correctly, we will take care of the hungry and the needy. Verse 7, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring your how- into your house the poor who are cast out, and that you not hide, oh, sorry, and when you see the naked you cover them, and that you not hide yourself from your own flesh, If you drop down to 10, he says, and that you extend your soul to the hungry. There's this idea of of here, if you think about lifting a burden, there's a real spiritual sense to that, right? The burden has a physical sense where maybe I need to take you out of bondage. But lifting a burden, the gospel, is about freeing your spiritual, helping someone get freed spiritually from the burdens they're under. Here it's a little more practical, but there's there's a spiritual aspect to it too. I mean, think about it. If someone is unclothed, they're hungry, they have no place to live, what are the odds they're going to hear the gospel from you very well? There's a sense in which we have to stop and say, I've got to care for these people in a way that helps that burden be lifted and the gospel to be heard. This also contrasts with, I'm trying to figure out where to go back to verse 3 again on this one. It contrasts with verse 3 because what is the one thing that he uh, says about him? He says, while you're there, you find your own, you find your own pleasures. So you're fasting and you're finding your own pleasures. So this idea of taking the time to actually say, I'm going to free up my food and my time to take care of the physical needs of the individuals around me becomes important. But I think the key also to this is if you get to verse 10, where it says, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. There's a, there's a part of us, I think, that we just think of the physical needs and think that's how we take care of the hungry and the needy. right? But he says, if you take care of the afflicted soul, if you just rely on the government to take care of the poor and needy, the one big missing piece is the soul, the soul of the individual. And God says, no, when you fast correctly, you're going to share your bread with the hungry. That's one thing you are going to do. You're going to have extra food. So share it. Do it. Right? You're going to reach out to the people who are on the street. You're not going to say, pat them on the head and say, hey, there's a great home down the street. You're going to do something actionable to take care of them. The fast will drive you to do that. When you see someone who doesn't have clothes, you're not just going to send them down somewhere to find clothes. You're going to actually take them under your wing and take care of them. By doing that, you're actually taking and wrapping your soul around their soul. Right? There's the physical need, but there's the important part about your heart. How does your heart? You're not driving them hard anymore, just like you, you know you were in the first three verses, you're actually wrapping your arms around them and taking care of them. And there's a real, real worshipful ministry there. So if you think about what he's saying, he's saying, okay, first of all, take the burdens away. Now he's saying, reach out, take care of the hungry and the needy. 
there's a real need for you to do that because it's important when you fast that you see that. The next piece I think that builds off of that is when you get to verse 9, there's an intriguing little, little verse where it says, if you take away the yoke from your midst, and he says, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. It's kind of interesting in, the, uh, in some of the commentaries, uh, several of the guys mentioned that this is a, a, uh, a crude gesture, right? And I think Piper says, actually, this is an earthy passage. The thing I like about prophets is they don't beat around the bush, right? They call it like it is. And when you look at this, you say, huh. It says, take away the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. When you show contempt, right? And one of the things that he's saying is when you do a true fast, one of the things you will wash away is the contempt you have in your heart. How many times have you been driving down the road and someone cuts you off? And your tendency is to either say something or use your hand in a gesture, right? It's really interesting. The, the, the word that is used here, and if you look in the side notes, some of you will actually have it, where it says the sending out of the finger. Right? We've known for years. I mean, this, this goes back to Roman and, and uh, Greek writings. The hand has been used in a crude way to show contempt. And the, and, the, and the prophet here is saying, don't do that. Don't use your hand in a contemptuous way. I just got done telling you. Lift a burden. Take care of the needy. And now I'm telling you, don't be contemptuous of them. Now, if you're like me, what I do is I say, well, you know what? I was raised too well. There's no way I'm ever going to use my hand and do that crude gesture, right? Think about this one for a second. When's the last time you rolled your eyes at somebody? When's the last time, husbands, you rolled your eyes at your wife? Wives, when did you roll your eyes at your husbands last? Kids, your parents? All of us, when's the last time we rolled our eyes at the elders? Right? Is that not contempt? Is that not what he's saying? He's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. There's nothing good that can come with that. And immediately you start thinking about it because he backs it up with, you know, about speaking wickedness also, the tongue. The tongue becomes an important one. And oftentimes I have found that gestures and language go hand in hand. I mean, I think about being on the sports field all the time, and that was very common. I mean, that's just the way you do it. You give a gesture, you say the word. It reminds you of James. What does James say? Our tongues are the very tongues that can bless. Again, think about what we're going through. Right? Lift a burden. Help them out. Don't be contemptuous. Your tongue can be the tongue that spreads the gospel. It can also be the tongue that rains down curses. And the prophet's real clear, real clear here. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because a real fast will keep you from doing those things. Also makes me think about how did how did uh, how did Paul handle people who were unchurched, if you will? And it, it took me to Acts, and I was thinking about him on on the, the hill, and he he doesn't show contempt for them. He actually walks through graciously with them. They they say, "Hey, we've got a we've got a God for everything, and we have an extra one here just in case we forgot one." And he actually walks them through very gently. And I was thinking about look, look at the way Paul tells us to lift the burden because that's what he was doing for them, and he didn't show contempt. And he taught the gospel. And what, the, what, what we're hearing in this passage here is when you do all those things together, you do them right, you'll find them coming together in a way that gives you real joy. Real joy. I also was thinking about this, because I think there's a tendency in our circles right now. Think about how we treat people who don't see things the way we do. Right? Think about the guys that don't believe in creationism. And when you hear their ideas, what do you say to them? How do you treat them? Right? Think about the guys that don't see the world from our perspective with our worldview. How do we respond to them? 
I'll tell you, I've been in some places where actually what happens is it becomes a laughing thing. Right? We say, well, this is what they think, and everyone chuckles, ha, 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 ha. What the passage says is our heart should be breaking. Right? You want to do a true fast? You want to be fasting correctly? Your heart should be breaking for those guys. That's not the day I've called you to. I've called you to lift their burden, reach out to them. Don't show them contempt. Don't show them contempt. Last one that I saw uh, was I was thinking about what a true fast is like. Is this idea of a real fast will cause you to care for the afflicted. We already touched on this a little bit. But if you go to verse 10, it says, If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. And then he goes into a list of the, of the things that are good. It struck me when you think about fasting and why fasting is important, when you think about the afflicted people right, and, and that we should be able to help them out, who knows justice better than us? Do you not know true justice because of what has been shown you on the cross? So when you fast correctly, it should be driving you not to figure out how do I get what I want, like we saw in verses verses 2 and 3, right, where it says you, you have all these things going on, you're not doing them correctly. And it says, in fact, here's what's going on. You're pushing everyone, you're fighting, you're striking with the fist. You're saying, no, you know, reach out to the afflicted because you know justice better than anybody else. There's an interesting kind of parallel. If you look at verse 5, look at verse 5 real quickly. At the end, it says, "A day." It says, "Is this a fast I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul." And you get to verse ten. It's an interesting way that the New King James actually plays it well. Not all of the translations do, but he says, "If you extend your soul to hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul," there's this idea of the two playing against each other, right? This isn't the day for a man to afflict his soul, and he's saying, "But look, here is how you satisfy an afflicted soul. Satisfy this afflicted soul." I think in history we have Wilberforce. Is not Wilberforce a great example for us? Talk about helping the afflicted. I mean, slavery, what a horrible, horrible thing, a blight on our world. And Wilberforce, after he became convinced right, of God's grace, turned it and said, you know what, my job's to lift that kind of affliction. That's a great example for us. That's what we should be doing. Think about this. What do you do when someone walks in and looks at you and says, I'm having trouble drinking? How do you help that afflicted soul? What about someone who says, I'm having trouble lying? How do we stop and help that afflicted soul? I think there are so many practical ways for us when we're walking through here. If you're fasting correctly, your heart will immediately pour out to, how do I help? Not, hmm, look at them, right? And I think that's the tendency we have as humans. We tend to, especially... Christians, we're messy. We tend to want to say, well, I'm sorry that's your problem. I'll pray for you, and off you go. And what he's saying, no, if you fast correctly, you're going to care so deeply, you're going to go after it, and you're going to help raise the afflicted soul up. All right, so God laid out for us, here's how you should fast. All right, we get done, so he says, look, here's everything you did wrong. Now I'm going to tell you what to do right. And I laid them out for you pretty quickly, but, but I think the idea is you, your job is to lift burdens, right? Your job is to take care of the hungry, the needy. Your job is to lose the contempt that you might have. And your job is to take care of the afflicted. Take care of the afflicted. And then he says, now, by the way, this is where we get into the idea of don't look at this as a quid pro quo. He says, now, what's going to happen when that happens? A true fast, what's going to happen? I think they break down kind of interestingly. Uh, if you think about verse 10... Right, And he says, about halfway through, 
So here's all these things going on. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then here's a blessing that's going to happen to you. Then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. If you bounce back up to 8, he says, and then your light shall break forth like the morning. First thing that's going to happen is your light's going to shine. Your light's going to shine. The light is a powerful thing, and so that, I think that's why it's interesting that God tells us we're the light in a dark world. It takes you to, uh, it takes you to Colossians, right, where he's talking about Christ and his kingdom. And he says, there's this kingdom of darkness, if you want to my paraphrase, so give me a little attitude. He says, there's a kingdom of darkness, there's a kingdom of light. You've been called out of that kingdom of darkness into Christ's kingdom of light. Right? There's a promise about your light shining. And it reminded me of a story. When my parents were first down in the mission field, one of the things that happened was they used to turn off the lights and all the bugs would come out. And my dad would count to ten. He had one of those old pump things and he'd count to ten. He'd turn on the light and the wall would be covered. He'd jump out and he would just blast them. That's a lot like sin, is it not? Sin hates the light. We see that in, in John where he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, you know, evil and wickedness hate the light. So one of the promises you get when you fast correctly, you will be the light. And you know what that means? That means you will expose the wickedness around you. So you start thinking about how do I put all that together? How do I lift the burdens? Well, God says, one of the things that will happen, you'll be like the light. In verse 10 it says, and you will shine in the darkness and be like the noonday. Can you think of a better promise than God saying, you fast correctly and one of the benefits is you will shine like the noonday? What a beautiful thing. Second one I see is this idea that if you fast correctly, you will be healed and restored. If you look at verse 8, he says, and your healing will spring forth speedily. If you drop down to 11, he says, I will strengthen your bones. This idea of healing is all through Isaiah, right? You think of Isaiah 53. It's not the same word that's used here, so I'm not going to push too hard. But healing is an important thing. You know, we've been healed. You think about your spiritual state of being healed. And he says, when you fast correctly, your healing will come quickly. You will feel the healing. It will be a joy to you. And then he talks about strengthening your, your bones down in, in verse 11. That makes you contrast David. What does David say when he's full of sin? He says, sin what? Crushed my bones. It crushed my bones. And right here he says, no, you know, when you fast correctly, one of the things I'll do, I'll actually strengthen your bones. I will make you stronger. What a great promise. I'm going to make you shine like the noonday. I'm going to heal you and, and, and make your bones stronger. Next one, this is probably my favorite one, is this idea of a true fast has you surrounded by God. This is like that overstuffed chair in, your clo- you know, in the corner of your room where you would get into it, you just kind of snuggle in, and all of a sudden everything feels well. Look at, look at what he says in verses 8. He says, And your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard, and you shall call, and the Lord will answer, and you shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. What was their complaint back in verse 3? What do they say? You haven't noticed us. We're calling out to you, and you don't notice us. And what what does he say here in verse verse 8? He says, You do it right, and you know what? I will hear you. It should make your spine tingle. That one of the promises of true fasting is that when you call out, you will hear a voice whisper to you, Hear I am. What a great promise. You'll shine like the noonday. You'll be healed. And when you call me, you're not going to be like the, the guys that we just talked about, right? You're not going to fall into the same trap that we just talked about where you call out and you don't hear from me. You're going to hear me say, here I am. I love that one. That one makes me smile. And the last one is the idea, it's verses 11 and 12, the idea of being satisfied. Is that not what a fast is about ultimately? Ultimately, it's about us finding satisfaction in the wrong places. So they sat there in those first verses, they lay out their whole case, and it's all about their own satisfaction. 
Where do I find my satisfaction? Well, I'm working my workers hard, so I still get my, my work done. I may be fasting, but you know what? I'm enjoying other things somewhere. They don't tell us what it is. But he says, no, you know what? Fast this way, and you're going to get true satisfaction. Look at it. It says in 11, The Lord will guide you continually. He will satisfy your soul in drought. Is there any better picture than the idea of a drought, a land full of drought, and when water pours on it, what happens? It sucks it in. It sucks it in and loves it. You skip and strengthen your bones and skip down a little bit. It says, And you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places and you shall raise up foundations and many, of many generations. I love that imagery. Right? He says, It's like if you were a drought, then he says, I'm going to turn you into a watered garden. Think about a watered garden. You fast correctly. One of the benefits is your life turns into a watered garden. You walk through. It's lush. It smells great. Right? I'm giving you all these things. I'm giving you all these things. And, he says, you will be like a spring that does not fail. We should remind you of the conversation with the woman at the well. What does Jesus promise her? I will give you living water that never fails. And it's true here also. So when you think about a true fast, a true fast will give you satisfaction. And one of the things I think is important, we, 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 I touched on it briefly, but I think I have to go back and just talk about it briefly. He also says, you pour out your soul, right? You're going to give your soul the afflicted. I think there's a key here. It's not about what do I get out of the fast, right? That's what they were doing in the first five verses. I do all these things because I expect all these results. I expect you, God, to do these things. And he says, no, you know what? I'm going to pour all these things into you because your job is to turn around and pour it all back out into the people around you. That's why he says, lift the burden, right? Take care of the needy. Take care of the afflicted. Don't be contemptuous. As God gives you these blessings, he expects you and me and all of us to turn around and pour it back out to the world around us. That's why you fast. You fast because that's what it drives you to do. So a couple observations for you on fasting. As New Covenant believers, one of the things I think that we have a tendency to do is we tend to say, well, I don't want to get into a regimen. I don't want to get into a, a series of checklist Right, Just like they did in the first five verses, this checklist Christianity, if you will, the checklist religion. I do this, 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 and this, and this. And we tend to balk and say, that's why I'm not going to do things like this. I'm not, I don't want to get caught doing a ritual. And I think it's important for us to think about, in, in the, as New Testament believers, one of the things about God's satisfaction is we need to put aside anything that blurs our vision of God. Right? So don't think about this just about food. I think that's our tendency, and that's, and that's how it was in the Old Testament a lot. But I think for us, you need to think about anything that you have that gets in the way of God, music, books, magazines, right, television shows, whatever. Those are things you can fast from because they're the things that get away in the way of your vision of God. Right? And I think that's an important thing to remember. Second observation is we cry for revival a lot. Revival is one of the things that we are often asking for. And traditionally, revival has had several things going on with it. One of them is fasting, prayer, and evangelism. And I think one of the things that we keep saying here is we want revival, we want revival. And I submit to you that one of the things we need to learn to apply here in the body and the church at large is fasting, right? Because uh, we do want revival in our world. We do want revival in our land. And fasting and prayer are so inextricably linked I think they become an important component as we, as we try and drive revival in our land. Last one I touched on, but I skipped 13 or 14, but I think it's worth you guys going and looking at. It is tied together. 
because in verse, uh, in verse 13 he says, And if you turn away from the Sabbath, from the day of doing your pleasure on my holy day. So it does tie back in. I skipped it because I think there's a whole big long conversation and message about the Sabbath and the Sabbath rest. But I would encourage you, though I skipped it, you don't. Go back and reread this passage and think about 13 and 14 and how they, t- how they apply with the rest of it. Because I think there is a link there. But I, I didn't want to touch on it today. So applications. It's really simple. This is the one I had to learn the hard way, right? Fasting. Why do it? Just do it. Just do it. Just start. Find something that is in your life that is getting between you and a clear vision of God and give it up for a season. And you'll see things happen like you see in this chapter. God promises you when you fast correctly, these things will come your way. Just do it. Don't come up with excuses. Just do it. Humble yourself, I said. Humble yourself in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second one to remember is what I talked about at the very beginning. Sin crouches at the door. It's one of my favorite verses early on in in Genesis. Sin crouches at the door. And fasting is one of your best disciplines to help you keep your heart from deceiving you. Use it. It's a great tool. God gave us a beautiful passage that walks us through how to do it. Just do it. You'll appreciate it. The other one is, so much of that passage is about taking care of your neighbors. And I mean, that's one of our big, big mission statements, right? Love our neighbors. Love our neighbors. Think about what he's asking. Lift the burden. Take care of the poor and hungry. Lift the burden of the afflicted. What is that all about? That's about reaching out to our neighbors. Fast. Because our neighborhood needs it. Our neighborhood needs it. It needs us to be a people who do those things. And lastly, if you haven't ever believed or repented, this whole thing on fasting just doesn't even work for you. You're missing the most important part. And that's that the Savior came and died for you. Poured out his blood, broke his body, so that you could be reunited or united I should say to God right? fasting won't do you any good it will be a ritual unless you understand what your place is at the foot of the cross if you haven't ever done it do it today find somebody you saw the men that talked this morning you've seen the elders you've seen different men stop somebody today ask them how do I do this and then you can participate in fasting And those benefits that we just saw laid out in this passage, they'll come your way. And there's nothing more beautiful than that. Nothing more beautiful. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you are a loving God. We thank you that you don't leave us hanging, that you do give us manuals that help us work through life and the issues that are there. Father, we thank you for the discipline of fasting, the gift of of fasting. Father, we know that we are so much like the people in those first few verses of this passage where we have our checklist and we think we have it right. We pray that as we fast and as we seek your hand, you will point out those things to us as a body and as a nation and as people and as individuals that are in the way of us truly fasting in a way you want. We pray, Father, that we would relish and enjoy and rejoice and the blessings that you send our way, and that we would be a righteous people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the love 
you have given us. We thank you for your son, the blood he poured out for us. We pray that you would put your hand on us this week and that we would be able to seek to lift the burden, reach out to the needy, and help the afflicted, and that you would keep us from showing contempt. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.